Welcome to week one of Quantic Camp, brought to you by Quantitude, the podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In our first week of training, we will discuss how you get a quantitative research idea. By the end of this week, you will have formed a quantitative research idea of your own. Now fall in! Please? Welcome back, Greg. Hey there. Happy summer. It's summer, is it? <laughs> well, <laughs> as I press my face to the glass looking out, <laughs> sure, we'll go with summer. But we had a couple week break from this, which I have to admit I missed. I missed arguing with you over completely trivial and irrelevant things. <laughs> uh, is that what I mean to you? <laughs> <laughs> you had me at trivial and irrelevant. <laughs> I'm touched. I'm touched. I will say this, uh, our hiatus, such as it was, I really felt the void. So it's nice to be doing whatever this is. And I guess we'll have to figure out what this is. I don't know about you, but I found it curious that when we talked about QuantaCamp, which in the spirit of the entire season one that we've been doing this is that was completely unplanned. But how many people seem to be under the impression that it was like a fun summer camp that we were talking about? I'm Jordan, your counselor. Nature is one big laboratory and artist studio rolled into one. Yeah. What possible aspect... Of the uh-huh. past 26 episodes conveyed uh-huh. that this was a fun summer camp. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be served. Do you maggots understand that? There are going to be no stinking marshmallow roasts <laughs> here, people. This is boot camp with a Q. <laughs> because I am hard, you will not like me. But the more you hate me, the more you will learn. What part of the Henry V <laughs> mm-hmm. quote... That's right. ...implied that we were going to be roasting marshmallows and earning badges? <laughs> we don't need no stinking badges. If you're the police, where are your badges? Badges? We ain't got no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. This is like platoon Ooh. officer and a gentleman... Now, every time I say understand, I want the whole group to say, yes, sir, understand. Yes, sir, understand. Yes, sir. So that was my first thought was, wow, <laughs> what a misunderstanding that was. Yeah, I hope we cleared that up for everybody. I hope we cleared that up. <laughs> we are at Quanta Boot Camp. We really should have just called it that, Quanta mm-hmm. Boot Camp. It doesn't but flow. It yeah. doesn't, and you can't spell boot with a Q. With a Q. So that- <laughs> That's the only gag we have, is how flexible is Q. I know. Well, the Q is silent, actually. (laughs) I like that. Okay, done. It's Quanta Boot Camp with the silent Q. Uh Uh-huh. But only one is silent, the other two are Mm -hmm. not. It's a complicated language we're designing here. We are doing this on Friday morning. It is currently 10.03. You and I have Mm -hmm. committed ourselves as blood brothers to not do an 81-minute recording episode. All right, now we have done this in the past, (laughs) and we have utterly failed. Uh We are going to try this again. What's our goal with this? 79. Dang, I like it. I think we can (laughs) clock in a solid 79. And if we can, that means by the end of the summer, we'll be in the 60s. I'm not a big fan of linear functions. Mm. I mean, I think I think there's a marked slowing here. I, I, th- I think the word to characterize us is decay. Decay. <laughs> 
Alien. So many elements. Just straight up decay. Um, so okay. we have Quanta Camp. Let's just say the whole boot is silent. So it's okay. Quanta Boot Camp, but, but the boot is it's, a, it's an obscure dialect of Gaelic where uh-huh. any consonant followed by a consonant with consecutive vowels you just don't pronounce. So yeah. Okay. So it's Quanta Camp where the boot is silent. <laughs> but going into it is we had a unavoidably militaristic call to arms. Diane, you are senior drill instructor. Tries constantly to be the best in everything she does. Discipline and spirit. Even after some of you have given up on yourself. Mm-hmm. Which I appreciate you conceding to me on this stuff is... <laughs> Even the meme with Iwo Jima raising the Quantitude flag is you threw me a bone on that one, and I appreciate I, that. You know, I had just watched you twirl a knife while we talked for 27 <laughs> episodes, and it's just like, this is bigger than I am. I just I cut myself <laughs> twice. Twice in one episode, uh-huh. I cut myself. We were arming sleeper cells. We sent out the signal. We are rising up. Mm-hmm. And it is to become quantitative leaders in your own substantive field. And so what we thought we would do over the summer, just because it's fun and it doesn't take very much preparation. Un- unlike the rest of our episodes. <laughs> I only have one sticky note for this episode. Oh, okay. I usually have two. <laughs> so it's half the preparation time All right. All is right. to pick away at, well, how do you do that? How do you go about striving to become a quantitative leader in your own field? And on my sticky note, mm-hmm. I have, are you ready for this? Wait, don't give it all away. Quant research oh. idea question mark. That's right. my outline for Excellent. the episode. Okay. So can we do something with that? Uh, is there anything on the back of the post-it? Yeah, a sticky glue thing so that it, oh. it adheres to okay. things. It's mm-hmm. really cool. All right, well, let's go with your idea. Uh, I'll just set my three pages aside. <laughs> All right, so how how would you like to do this first quanta boot camp that we're... <laughs> what part of not pronounced are you okay. not understanding? <laughs> well, the first episode will really be around how do you come up with a quantitative idea? And the word quantitative is... In quotes, only in the sense that there's such a wide variety of things that count as quantitative ideas. So so today, I think what our goal was, was to talk about quantitative ideas. Yes? I agree. And here's my definition of what would constitute some kind of work involving quantitative. And are you ready for this? Anything that involves a number. (laughs) Meaning that we have an excessively broad definition of this. Wow. If you assign a number to an observation, right? The good Mm -hmm. old Stevens, 1939, 46, 42, Delta wide, hike! Omaha! Sorry. Omaha! Um, If you assign numbers to observations and then do something with them, Mm -hmm. that counts as quantitative. Okay. All right. Yes, so, that does open the barn doors a bit. So where then do you get a novel idea that is quantitatively oriented stemming from your substantive program or research? And so we'll tr- let's trade some ideas uh, along that front. Even I mean, I know you're out of sticky. Um, I am, actually. <laughs> 
Um, but I have a bag of beef jerky and oh. a cup of iced coffee. And Wait, so I'm that, actually set. Was that Costco specific gold? That was gold? Costco Pacific gold beef jerky. I am not convinced it comes from a cow, <laughs> but it is grass fed and all natural. <laughs> And as my daughter points out, so is cyanide and uranium. Uh-huh. <laughs> so using your Gaelic rule, I think beef would be silent. <laughs> oh, you're Just, right. Yeah. It's a consonant bracket. Yeah, followed consonant. by a double. Yeah. Um, another thing that I will mention is what we're going to try to do and have started doing on Twitter with regard to assignments. Is this an okay time to bring this up? Please. Okay. Because we have Sergeant Q. Yes, yes. <laughs> we have Sergeant Q. What we thought we would do to complement these episode, non-episode quanta camps is to have assignments on, was I better? Uh, yes. Have assignments on uh, on Twitter. And we have the first assignment that was posted. And I have to tell you, we got an amazing response from people. The first assignment that we had, and I'm just pulling it up right now, is where Sergeant Q had asked people to tweet whatever they considered to be a great didactic quantitative paper or resource that helped them to learn about some method or some issue. And we got a ton of posts and people interacting around the posts uh, with a little hashtag QuantiCamp in there. And it was great around a whole bunch of different themes. I assume you were tracking some of that too. I mean, to the extent that you let me touch it, yeah, I have a child guard. I, there is. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of a lost cause on this. But it's amazing because all of us have little things that we found particularly useful with the little hashtag QuantaCamp, where, again, camp is with the Q. If you use the intertube to send twits, mm-hmm. is look at it, and it's really cool. I mean, there are a lot of unique little things that people have found that have helped them in their own work or understanding a problem. And and so, yes, I, I was very pleased with our icebreaker Sergeant Q full metal jacket kind of thing. My daughter drew that on the spot is Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I need a military quantitoid. And she gave me that look where the dog wants a treat, but Mm -hmm. you're not giving it to him. And she kind of cocked her head. And so that's what we ended up with. In our continuing child labor exploitation efforts, Um, It's giving them creative outlets for their artistic work in ways that they wouldn't otherwise have possible. Okay, good. Teachable moments. Teachable uh, moments. (laughs) So, yes, what I want to do is how about if we do, sometimes this works all right with us, is we ping pong. Some of the thoughts I have on my sticky are more just self-focused because we all know this is about me. Yeah, absolutely. Enough of me talking about myself. Greg, what do you think of me? (laughs) Well, we only have 45 minutes. That's true. I don't know. Since it was my idea to ping pong, why don't you start? If you were to talk to somebody who's out on the back deck with their feet up listening to this nonsense and thinking about where do you generate a quantitatively oriented research idea, where do you start? I reached out to a number of students and faculty and asked them, uh, so how do you come up with ideas? And people were very kind to send me all kinds of ideas. But let me, let's see, I'm going to drop my pen on one thing here and see what it lands on. Uh, And he really just did that. I'm impressed. I, I did. That was not a figurative pen dropping. That was a literal pen dropping. No, I actually... It would have been more impressive if it was a knife, but, you know. 
So this one came up in a previous episode, might have been the grad advice episode or one of the other episodes. Um, But when we learn things in classes, if you're a student, for example, or if you take a workshop, uh, when you learn things in classes, a lot of methodological ideas come up in those particular classes. And that means that if you are a methodologist, you might say, ooh, there's an area where I could explore a little bit further. Or if you're someone who does more applied work, you might, we hope, start making connections between the methods that you've been exposed to and some of the research questions that you have. When I teach my own classes, I will invariably have a course project at the end. And for people who are in applied fields, that means that they have to get access to data. Then they have to try to find a way to marry some of what they have access to with some of the ideas that we've had in a particular class. And I will tell you that this has been enormously successful for the people who have taken my classes. And I'll sort of broaden the idea of classes to workshops as well, because I, I, like you, have taught many, many workshops. So many wonderful research ideas have come from people taking their own content knowledge and marrying it with some of the methods that we have chosen. But one of the best things, I think, as a growing methodologist is to try to code up a method yourself. And one of the things that happens when you code up a method yourself is you really start to figure out where the cracks are. You really start to figure out where the assumptions are. When you code up something yourself in whatever your favorite language, I don't actually care, to the point where you get it to match an existing software package you know, that people trust, then you now own that idea to the extent that you know how it works, but you also know what limitations you had to put in. You also know what all the aspects of it that you can start to question might be. I love that. And it works on both sides of the street, exactly what you said from the student's Mm -hmm. perspective. But you know what I'll do a lot, and what I like in this strategy from my end is I can pitch out ideas without ever having to do anything. Mm -hmm. And so it simultaneously seems altruistic but mm-hmm. at the same time as it's just another work avoidance <laughs> strategy. You and I could do, maybe as we start, you know what, seriously, we should do this as jot down topics for season two. One is socially acceptable strategies for avoiding work, right? Is uh, guest lectures, that's a big uh-huh. one. Flipped yeah. classrooms. Don't give it away, don't give it all away. Watch the Khan Dear Academy. God. And Yeah, okay, so anyway. <laughs> I will literally say as a faculty member, oh, that would be a really interesting paper, Mm -hmm. a little paper. And I use the term little, and I don't mean it pejoratively. When I say that, I mean it as focused, like a little paper. I like little papers, Mm -hmm. meaning that it's a tight question, a tight addressing, in and out, nobody gets hurt, you Mm -hmm. walk away with something new. A lot of our audience are more substantively oriented, quantitatively interested researchers, but Mm -hmm. they're a minority who are you know, thought leaders in the quant area itself. And I would encourage on the teaching end of it is to help throw out these ideas as well. There's a cute little anecdote that I heard by Dag Sorbom. And Dag Sorbom was one of the partners in the creation of Lisrel originally. And he had Carl, my name isn't Carl Jorskog, as his, uh, as his advisor. And when structural equation modeling was originally created, it was really just covariance structure modeling. The assumption was that all of your variables were mean-centered so that we don't really have to talk about what's going on in a mean structure. And he was having a conversation with Dog one day, 
And this is, Doug actually told me this story, and I hope I'm not mangling it too badly. But Carl said something very much offhand that was, you know, I, I think you can do this with means too. And that was about all he said. And so Doug went off and figured out how to do the entire mean structure modeling that complemented and then was married with the covariant structure modeling to create really a larger modeling framework. And it was just an idea that someone had said out loud in a conversation and he seized on it and went and figured out how to do that. Listen for those things, right? For those of you who are out there, keep your ears out, whether it's from someone knowledgeable like Patrick who throws out a little bone like that, or it's just a conversation that you're having with someone else. Keep your ears out for those because those can be total gems. All right. Let's see. I'm not going to drop a pen because I don't have a pen to, <laughs> or anything to drop a pen on. Uh-huh. I will embrace the obvious one, if I may, because that's actually a cornerstone of my entire personality. It's a strength of yours. If I didn't state the obvious, I would have very little to say. <laughs> when I think about my own work, I think the most fertile grounds for developing quantitative ideas is when I'm working on a substantive topic itself, whether it be in my own work, whether I be collaborating with colleagues, a handful of things that I've done that I would at least like to consider a quantitative contribution all arise from having a real problem that we faced and trying to come up with some novel way of dealing with that. And you know what mm-hmm. it centers around for me is it makes me feel greedy. Like mm-hmm. we will be doing some analysis. I do a lot of work in longitudinal and and I've written a series of papers, some better than others on How do you link two variables together over Mm -hmm. time? All of that came out of doing a collaborative project, modeling trajectories of uh, drug and alcohol use in adolescence, along with trajectories of anxiety and depression in adolescence. And how do you link these together? And there, as with everything with me, there's a long version of the story. But the punchline is, with a multivariate growth model, you could access certain relations at the level of the trajectory. With an autoregressive-like model, you can get temporal precedence in these lead-lag relationships, but there are a hundred problems with that. And at the time, you either had to pick one or the other. I wanted both, right? As I was a selfish little petulant kid, and I wanted both. A series of papers came out where we tried to meld those different processes in a single model. And so that's an example out of my work. And then the whole integrative data analysis stuff came out. We talked on that episode. Mm -hmm. All of that work came out of trying to figure out how to do this when we had real data and a real question, but we didn't have the tools available at the time. Look at what you're trying to do, what you're able to do, and what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And try to think about, can you piece things together in a way that lets you be greedy and do multiple aspects of things instead of picking just one? I like that very much. And from a methodologist's perspective, I totally agree that really the most interesting ideas that I've had have come from working with people in substantive areas other than ours, which is, of course, is a substantive area, but figuring out what the holes are that they have, realizing that, oh my gosh, we don't actually have a tool for that, but we have the Legos to build the tools that we need. We just have to figure out how to put them together. I I would like to take that and 
there was nothing really that you said that had to be from the point of view of a methodologist, but I'd like to flip it around and and speak to people who aren't in our field explicitly when they go to their day jobs. Say that like when you're taking a workshop or taking a quantitative methods class, you can take a quant person to lunch, do a little date, lunch date or a coffee date with a quantitative person. And I guarantee you, If you both talk about the things that you work on, the things that you are interested in, guaranteed there's a cool idea at the intersection of what you two do. It's just impossible for it not to be because you've got one person who tends to have a very large tool belt and another person who has a very broad domain with lots of cool problems to solve, but they don't necessarily know what tools are available. Have that lunch, have that coffee, and really cool things will come out. As quantitative methodologists, we get great ideas from working with people out there in content areas. I think people in content areas can get great ideas by just having the courage to try to socially interact with someone who's a quantitative methodologist. Um, Really nice things would come out of that. And there's a community service element of that, of take Mm -hmm. a quantitative person to lunch day is mm-hmm. it gets them out, you're modeling social skills, yeah. you're giving nourishment that might not otherwise be conveyed. Yep. And so it's kind of a win-win. <laughs> Could you chew with your mouth closed? Okay, thanks. Thanks. Good for you. Yes, a lot of progress can be made. I'm taking that as the one off my list by flipping yours. Oh, okay. So, so it goes back to you. Again, thinking about where do I puzzle through an idea, a lot of my work has stemmed of trying to soothe worries about things that maybe I'm doing in my own work and I don't know what the implications are, so violating mm-hmm. assumptions. Mm-hmm. I've done over the years a number of papers of kind of simulations of looking at, well, to what extent can you ignore non-normality, right? Mm-hmm. And to what extent can robust estimation fix non-normality? I think a lot of really interesting work can be done of maybe poke and stick kind of thing. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm making these assumptions, but in reality, I have a smaller sample size. I have a little bit of non-linearity. I have a little bit of non-normality. I have a little bit of dependence. I wonder how bad that really is. And a lot of ideas can come from that, of how do these things behave in situations that you're using them in your substantive area of work? And are there some interesting questions to probe as to, well, how sensitive are they to those assumptions? Or how cool are you to say, no, this is fine. It's close enough for government work. Yeah, I think that's really, really important work to do, the robustness kind of work, because all of the statistical methods that we use are wedded to some particular assumptions, and they almost certainly don't hold in real life. And we can sort of wave our hands in the air and go, well, you know, it's probably fine. So that work is absolutely critical to give us the confidence in the methods that we use or to give us the appropriate caution to go forward and and maybe know that we need to invoke some sort of alternatives. Now, there's a trailing edge of that sword, which is it's also a fertile ground for doing dumb work (laughs) or work that nobody really cares about. I mean, it's really easy to do a bad simulation. Absolutely treat that as plumbing the depths for unique ideas to evaluate the sensitivity of how you use methods under conditions that you encounter in your work, but don't use it as a way of generating bonehead ideas. Is it my turn to drop a pencil? It is. Uh, All right, here we go. Here we go. Okay. 
The <laughs> one way that you can get ideas is by actually listening to Reviewer 2. I know we had a whole episode on review on on reviewer two with and, the voodoo and, doll, if I yes. recall. <laughs> yes, boy, that voodoo doll has been through a lot. I will tell you just from my own experience, I've gotten a lot of comments from reviewer two that my answer has been, and I think reasonably so. That is an interesting question, but it's really beyond the scope of this paper. And I, I have a knee-jerk reaction to say that to damn near anything, any extra work that Reviewer 2 suggests that I do in papers. And so I have to be honest with myself about whether or not I need to add those things to the paper. But when I pull back and think about it, there have been a number of occasions where the reviewer actually suggested stuff that was a really good idea. You know, how does this topic link to that other area? That might be an interesting topic. Can you expand this to models of data that are of a different type? I don't know. It's beyond the scope of this paper, but that's an interesting idea. So after you're done with your emotional reactions to the things that reviewer two says, and if you honestly say, you know, that's beyond the scope of this paper, also acknowledge that that's a pretty darn good idea and maybe take the reviewer up on that. In my own work a number of years ago, maybe almost 20 years ago now, I was just writing what was a kind of small paper, I would say, on effect size measures in latent means models, which was not rocket science. It was just importing some of the measured variable effect sizes into the latent world. And one of the reviewers said it would be really nice if you could link this to power. And I'm like, yeah, it would be nice. (laughs) Right. And I I really wanted to write back that it's uh, that, yeah, that's beyond the scope of this paper. But I took some time to actually try to work through it. When I say I took some time, I mean a couple of months to try to work through some of the math about how effect sizes in the latent variable world tie to power and sample size and all of that. And out of that grew an interest in construct reliability or replicability. So many things for me. In fact, the way that I think about things, latent uh, power analysis and structural equation modeling, larger issues of reliability came from one comment from reviewer two. So to the extent that you can allow yourself to see those as valuable things, there's a, there's a nice trove of possibilities sometimes in the comments that you get. I don't know if I have taken as much advantage of that in the past as I might otherwise have, is I I have a congenital propensity to defensiveness. Because I'm not defensive, you are. That is one I would do well to pay more attention to myself. So another one on my list... Mm-hmm. It's related to my first one of things come organically out of trying to do your own work. But another one I've found where I've written several papers out of is simply sharing a solution that you develop for something with others because it might be useful. Mm-hmm. So we did some moderated nonlinear factor scoring things in these integrative data analysis settings. We spent a lot of time trying to come up with a principled step-by-step procedure. And we even had an internal document. I don't know about you and your research group, but I forget things like before I walk back to my office if they're Mm -hmm. not written down. And so part of it was just institutional memory, but part of it was this almost guidebook. You do this step, you do this step, you do this step. And so it was totally an internal document. And then we started looking at it and it's like, well, this might be helpful for somebody else just to thumbtack on the wall. And we wrote an entire paper around that. Mm-hmm. We literally took an internal document and made that into a manuscript. Just yesterday, 
two friends of the podcast are are Willa and Shots. And if you follow Twitter, <laughs> you know both Willa and Shots well. Yes. And I had a really pleasant opportunity to argue with the two of them for an hour <laughs> about integrative data analysis, and it was great fun. For for you? Was it pleasant what and great fun it... for them? <laughs> okay, that's right. That's right. I apologize. Details are irrelevant, but they're doing this really complicated integrative data analysis, and they're doing this very thoughtful and rigorous way. And one thing they had done is taken four different approaches to evaluating measurement and variance across eight contributing studies and trying to triangulate on a common theme. And then the second thing was to develop a calibration model on existing data, but the grant that they had would continue to bring in new data. Instead of doing the measurement and variance as each data file comes in, is establish fixed parameters and then use that as a calculator where you feed the new data through mm -hmm. and then send it back out to the contributing studies. It was a wonderful idea, but it was very engineering focused. They were trying to solve this problem. And we literally talked just yesterday of saying, that would be a nice little quant paper. Mm -hmm. It actually came up is you've done this ton of work. <laughs> you've got these internal strategies that are working really well and other labs could benefit from that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a real time example of these internal documents themselves are half written manuscripts. Yeah, I love it when you have to solve a problem for yourself, but then you realize, you pull back a bit and you go, wow, you know, other people really could benefit from this. And, and you've been in the trenches trying to work on that problem. Sometimes that happens when you're writing up some code for yourself to solve a particular issue as well. And I, I think that describes a lot of what's going on in the R community where people will create something that they find particularly useful to solve their problem. And they realize that, oh my gosh, a lot of other people might be experiencing this problem too. And so they take it further with regard to documentation and, and getting it approved and so forth. Uh, but a lot of packages that are out there were developed with, the, with an eye toward solving some real problem that people realize that others have. And that is one form of making a contribution to the quantitative space. Where are we? Are you dropping a pen? I don't, I don't even know you, where the heck we are. I think it's your turn. All right. Uh, let's see. I really like journal clubs where you get together with a group of people and you might have a focal piece or a couple of focal pieces. And it can be done as formally as a seminar class, or it can be done as informally as just some colleagues or friends getting together to piece through a particular paper. But I'll tell you, when you have two, three, four, five minds that went through a single paper, what you get out of it in the conversation is all the different things that people have attended to. And that includes areas of weakness, areas of strength, next steps. And it can actually be a lot of fun in a completely dorky way to sit around and talk through a paper together. It's a great fertile ground for ideas. I'll tell you one place that that comes out for me that's not exactly journal club, but it's like that. And we mentioned something like this in an earlier episode. And that is when you're reviewing a manuscript. So it's not actually a fully formed work yet. It might have that as its destiny. It might not. When I work with my grad students, uh, oftentimes I will have them co-review. And we will both look at the manuscript separately and then come together 
And it's really interesting to see what different things we attend to and the things that the students see that I don't see, the ideas that come to mind. So certainly doing the review is is the main focus of the task, but the conversation that we have after that about all the interesting things that are going on there, and you know what that reminds me of, tremendous ground for stuff. To add to that, something that I've done a little bit, but not as much as I would have liked, is doing that kind of reading club, but with classic works. So Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of reading over the last year or so in factor analysis and have gone back to the Lawley and Maxwell, that tiny Mm -hmm. little book, and then... I'm really fortunate in we're in the Thurstone psychometric lab and L.L. Thurstone was here and literally right here on my desk right now is I have Thurstone's copy of Vector of Mind. But when I say Mm -hmm. Thurstone's, I mean (laughs) Thurstone's copy. He has his Uh name written on the inside Uh cover. It's just a trip. Uh-huh. But to go back and reread this stuff from the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, and not only do you appreciate that we're not half as smart as we think we are, people mm-hmm. have been dealing with this stuff for 50, 60, 70 years, but that is also a generative ground for ideas, whether that be in the quantitative historical literature or in the historical literature underlying your own substantive field of study is there were a lot of nuggets thrown out by these early scientists that have yet to be resolved and are also a source of, ah, I wonder if I brush that off, if there's something that could be done with that now. So I'm echoing years, but also it doesn't have to be the 2020 issue of whatever. An example of that was, and this is going to seem kind of strange, but I was going through, I think it was one of the appendices of uh, one of Spearman's early works, Mm. You know, and the things that we can do now, obviously we have much greater technical capabilities, but sometimes, as we've talked about, that means we over-rely on those technical capabilities and we don't tend to get into the weeds on some things. And I was reading in one of his appendices uh, some stuff that related to factor analysis and correlation, and I made a connection between that and some things where it would allow us to compute some measures of reliability differently and in ways that had the potential to be certainly more accessible, but also possibly more stable than ways that were that were doing it. Exactly what you described happened, that that inspired me because I could marry that little thing that someone had to do back in the day because that was the only option they had to solve a problem that we had that we had currently. Now, the fact that Andy Hayes wrote a paper right after that that probably did it better, <laughs> I'm not bitter, Andy. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not bitter at all. So, you, I believe, are next up. Yeah, so another one, and it is similar to the prior one I talked about, mm-hmm. these internal documents to your lab. These are the centerpieces often of quantitatively oriented papers. Mm-hmm. One that's related to that, we have a whole series of papers over a 20-year period that stemmed from us trying to understand something ourselves. Dan Bauer, Chris Preacher, Mike Willoughby, myself, we had two, three, four different papers related to this, all around probing interactions in growth models and within the latent curve model and the multi-level model. All of this came from arguing amongst ourselves Mm -hmm. of how do you interpret these effects. So you have in a latent curve model, an exogenous predictor of intercept, an exogenous predictor of slope. Well, that's an unambiguously a main effect predictor of the slope, but it's actually an 
indirect effect via the time codings to get to the repeated measures that any multi-level modeler rolls their eyes and says, no, duh, it's a cross-level interaction. Mm -hmm. You have time at level one, you have a time invariant covariate at level two, the reduced form gives you the cross-level interaction. But in the latent curve model, time isn't a variable in the model. It's entered in the factor loading matrix. And so there is no cross-level interaction, yet there's still an interaction with time. And we didn't understand it ourselves. And we would do all of these Marcel Marceau mm -hmm. <laughs> pantomimes of trajectories of mm -hmm. it drops and it goes down and it drops and it goes down, it drops and it goes down. And so that was one thing is we wrote a series of papers of trying to figure it out ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, another great example, there's a wonderful guy who worked with us a, a long time ago, Jeremy Biazons. Mm -hmm. uh, he worked with Steve West, came out of Arizona State University. He's now at University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And we would argue endlessly about the role of the coding of time in growth models. You start with zero, put zero in the middle, put zero at the end. You have a mm -hmm. really nice paper on that where you show off your high school calculus and <laughs> do the aperture. I think you have the, the aperture mm -hmm. of this, but it's at the time, this was a very new topic and people were arguing about it. And if you move the zero point, it is this weird thing where the models are all likelihood equivalent, but you can get some radically different results for the parameter estimates because they mm -hmm. represent different aspects of the trajectory. Well, Jeremy wrote this really nice paper that drilled into what is the issue what's happening, and why should we not be afraid of it? That internal document of us trying to understand something so that we can use it properly and interpret it properly, whole manuscripts came from that in sharing that process with others. Yeah, and that's a really nice model. Once you learn something, once you figure something out, there's a really good chance that other people don't understand it and that they could greatly benefit from it. And that might mean that you do something like you and Jeremy did, or it might mean that someone writes what we said before, a teacher's corner kind of piece or a really nice explication in their field about how a particular method works. I mean, they're wonderful papers. I will tell you, I find some of the best pieces to share with students. If you want to understand this, go to this field and look at that example, go to this field and look at that didactic paper. So I think that is a great thing. Once you have puzzled with something, once you've come to understand it, write about it for your people. Be that person that people recognize in your field as someone who helps the field to make sense of these quantitative methods and bring it to them. I think that's just a wonderful suggestion. All right. So I'm going to look at our clock. Mm -hmm. We are 54 minutes into the recording session. It's about halfway for us. We <laughs> a piece. I thought I clarified that yesterday when we were texting. Uh -huh. Last uh -huh. night on the back deck, it was getting late and you and I were texting and, and I said 81 minutes and you said you thought we could do that. And uh -huh. I pointed out that was 81 minutes for each of us. Do you want to do one more and I'll do one more and then we can talk about where to go or do you have more to talk about? I don't think just between the two of us, I don't know that I have anything more that isn't sort of embedded. Okay. So saying on a podcast, just between the two of us. Yeah. Okay, I promise okay. I won't tell anybody else. <laughs> well, that used to be true when we started off. <laughs> that <Any> is. 
<laughs> well, it was between the three of us, <laughs> yes, you, me, true. and my mom. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, if you have something more or or a little bulleted list that you want to rattle off, why don't you go ahead and then then we can bring it home with an assignment. We will have a Quanta Camp assignment <sighs> okay. from Sergeant Q. Boy, mm-hmm. we're just going to beat this to death, aren't we? <laughs> That's new. I have a couple, and, and I don't need to expand on these. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, sitting on the back deck, I pulled up my phone, and I searched myself on Google Scholar, because I don't even mm-hmm. remember the papers I've written. Is This is mm-hmm. a broader issue we could talk about later, but... <laughs> I was kind of flipping through on my phone and thinking about what was the motivation for that particular paper. And I wrote a couple of papers that was purely curiosity. We were just wondered. We went to all of this work using moderated nonlinear factor analysis to obtain covariate informed modal a posteriori Bayesian estimate. But you can just add up the binary items and divide by how many you have. <laughs> Is it worth it? And we right. wrote several papers because we were just curious. And yeah. yeah, it turns out it was worth it. We wrote a whole paper on the 05 RMSEA cutoff. Does it mm-hmm. work or not? Because we right. just kind of wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Turns out, no, the 05 criterion has no basis for universal use. Mm-hmm. We were just curious. So one was curiosity. One <laughs> is writing a couple of papers so that people quit bothering you. Oh, that's a good one. It, you know, if you don't like responding to emails, we wrote a paper of frequently asked questions about latent growth modeling. Mm -hmm. And what it is is now, if I get an email, I can just say, thanks so much. I hope you were well. These are great questions. I've attached a PDF here. Mm -hmm. So we wrote a paper on that. We wrote Uh an entire paper on how to do Monte Carlo computer simulations from like a pragmatic standpoint, workflow kind of stuff. And it was early on. This was almost 20 years ago. But mm-hmm. workflow, how do you generate data? How do you store data? How do you synthesize data and all this? The reason for this was so that when we wrote our actual simulation papers that we intended to write, we wouldn't have to keep repeating that in the method section as we could just say we detail our right. methods in this paper. And that's exactly what we did. So one was the dumping ground kind of quit bothering me. And the other is I've done this less myself is using it as an opportunity to yell at people to stop doing that, Uh right? (laughs) Bud McCallum has a great paper on the median split. Uh That was uh, yelling out the front door, get off my lawn and quit (laughs) doing that. Uh (laughs) Don't ignore ordinal distributions. Don't ignore your intraclass correlation. Don't build models following modification indices. There are really important quant papers on all of these that are Mm -hmm. just yelling out the front door, quit doing that, you kids. Right. (laughs) So a couple of just quick follow-up things to that. The getting people to stop asking you questions is is a great one. A number of years ago, uh, my friend Ralph Mueller and I did a book called The Reviewer's Guide to Quantitative Methods in the Social Sciences. And the whole motivation for that book was that people had asked us for years, if if I'm doing, 
you know, insert method here. If I'm doing cluster analysis, if I'm doing logistic regression, what are the things I have to make sure that I put in the paper? Or if I'm reviewing, what are the things I have to make sure in the, and we're just, we were just so tired of getting the same questions over and over. We thought, wouldn't it be great if there was just like a checklist for all these methods? And so we, you know, got a bunch of people to write chapters in that particular book so that we could do exactly what you said. When someone asked us, we could just go say, yeah, yeah, check out that book. Almost to the point where you want to make it your vacation message uh, on your email mm. that if someone emails you, just poof, go check that. And that got updated with adding Laura Stapleton as an editor in the last year. Well, isn't that the one that I committed to submitting a chapter and then I never did and you had to get Knuckles to do it? Ah, uh, that might have happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Knuckles is Dan McNeish. Yes. There yes. are too many Dans in my life. We established <laughs> this earlier. Dan <laughs> Curran, Dan Bauer, Dan McNeish, Steely yeah. Dan. But we routinely just rename people who come through the research group if it confuses us. And so, yeah, it's easier uh, yeah, for Patrick. Right. It's easier for me. Yeah. One other thing, though, that I wanted to reflect on that you had said, where you said, you know, just you had a curiosity about yeah. something. And I will say that you and I are in places where we can afford to have shiny object syndrome, right? We little We get a little bug under our... Where do we get bugs? You get a bug in your butt or a bee in your bonnet. I think that's just important, really, not to confuse those. But you and I can afford to play around with stuff. And sometimes people who are earlier in their career, the advice that I give them, and not everybody agrees with this advice, is to be a little bit more careful about projects. And so when I'm talking with newer scholars about things, about their ideas, one aspect of the conversation that I always try to weave in is is this a one-off or is this something that maybe has legs that that can spawn a number of other things and and sometimes i can sort of see that this is just an interesting corner that there won't be anything to do in and sometimes you don't know ahead of time i encourage people in my perpetually avuncular way to try to think about whether or not a particular curiosity is something that's going to carry them in a nice direction or if it'll just help you sleep a little bit better at night. One of the things I would say, and I'll tap back into stating the obvious, write these things down somewhere, somehow, when you get an idea, because Mm -hmm. they come up in the funniest times. You'll be in a talk, you'll be talking to a student, you'll be talking to your advisor, you'll be talking to your spouse. They come up in weird times, Mm -hmm. and mine... I don't know if it's hypoxia or if I just clear my mind or what, but a lot of times if I'm out on a run or if I'm sitting on a tree trunk, it's when I'm not thinking about them. It's like the La Brea tar pits of Mm -hmm. my mind is something will poke its head up when I'm not trying to think of it. I can't tell you how many times I've had what I thought was a clever idea and then I can't recreate it. Mm -hmm. Write it down, curate it, update it, think about it because they'll start to play off of one another as well. Figure out what works for you. Uh, As I've mentioned before, I have a a whiteboard in my office that people seem to leave me messages on (laughs) when they're visiting from North Carolina. Some people I know will just keep a running list on their phone of things just in in one of the notes apps that they have. Uh, That's a great thing because it's always with you. But I, I think that that's a wonderful idea and encourage people to do that. In fact, 
I think that people who are listening to this, who are taking their summer, pre-summer to, uh, to spend a little bit more time with us, I think you should make a homework assignment for yourself, and that is to come up with a research idea that would be considered quantitative. And we started off this by saying quantitative means a lot of things. Patrick broke it down to anything that involves the principled assignment of, uh, of numbers. But think about an idea and roll it around in your head over the next week or so and see if you can articulate a really good research question for yourself. And we're not asking you to tweet it out or anything, but, but we would like you to try and think about where are the good places that you get ideas from and, and try to formulate one. It might be a refinement on something that you've had previously, or it might be an entirely new idea. But I would, I would ask people to make a concerted effort to do this. What we can do is kind of make this a summer project. What we could do is curate this throughout the summer. Think about something that you would find interesting, whatever the genesis of that idea is. It is, a, is it a curiosity? Do you have some kind of internal document in your lab or something that you do yourself to help mm-hmm. you? Is it a checklist? Is it a list of priorities? Is it a way that you go about doing sensitivity analysis or diagnostics or something like that? And think about Is that something I could share Mm -hmm. with the field more broadly? Is there a comparing and contrasting you've been meaning to do? So there's all this work recently on growth models versus autoregressive cross-leg models versus whatever models. There are all these horse races of which one is best. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to get into a horse race. I hate horse races. <laughs> but is there a comparing and contrasting of alternative approaches in your field that you have some unique data file available that you could contribute to that? And mm-hmm. to do a thoughtful comparison of hey, there's this approach, there's that approach. This first method gives us insights in this way. The second method gives us insights in this other way. And here are the different situations in which these would be useful in your own work. And then, Greg, you and I can say, okay, well, now that you have an idea, Mm -hmm. what are different ways you could approach that? And maybe we could have that as a future conversation and a future conversation on Mm -hmm. how do you present a quantitatively oriented paper in a substantive journal? How do you cast it? How do you frame it? And there are a whole series of things we could talk about in the upcoming weeks. Good. I like that very much. So we hope that you'll take this opportunity to think about this little homework assignment and we'll try to continue to build your skill set, help you think about these kinds of things through our time together in the next summer weeks. Thank you all for your time. We are so glad you're joining us again for QuantaCamp. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, get outside when you can, but take care of yourself and take care of others. Yeah, thanks so much, everybody. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Yes, sir. These are Sergeant Hulk's men. He was injured during basic training. So am I to understand that you men completed your training on your own? That's the fact, Jack! That's the fact, Jack! Captain, these are exactly the kind of go-getters I want working on my EM-50 project in Italy. Oh, but, sir, these men Don't butt me, Captain. I want them on the plane tonight. Gentlemen, it's party time Italian style. (laughs) 